Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob again. I've got Execution Excellence, Making Strategy Work Using a Balance Scorecard. I've got Sanjiv Anand with me today. And uh, Sanjiv, where are you today, by the way? Hi, Bob. I'm actually in, in Dubai in the Middle East, nice. which is a long way from the U.S. Like if you're flying from India, how far is that? From Mumbai, it's only two and a half hours, so it's it's not so bad yet. And it's, and it's 16 hours nonstop to New York. You know, he, here's a weird question. You know, you, you're doing business in the States and, and people are flying to Chicago and New York and L.A. And they kind of, everybody has kind of like a, an idea of, you know, what those cities represent, what style of business and stuff like that. Um, where we are right now, how would you classify that if you were going to give it a, a, a North American city name? Is it a New York? Is it an L.A.? What type of city is it? It's a mix of New York and Las Vegas. Oh, nice combo. Because because the city, you know, in the last 10 years has become one of the most incredible uh, urban cities on the planet. You know, the world's tallest building is, is, is two minutes from me and, you know, it has great infrastructure. But it's also become a high-end tourist uh, location, right? So that's the Las Vegas part of it, right? But it's it's really it's really a great city, and I think you know I think it's an interesting question, Bob, because a lot of us, especially who come out of the U.S., often think of the Middle East as what you see on CNN, and and a lot of that may be true, but you know there are parts of the Middle East that are actually fascinating. You were talking about infrastructure, and uh, I, I wanted to ask you really. With infrastructure, what type of infrastructure do you look for in a city when you're doing business on an international scale? Well, you know, I'll give you a, it's interesting. Many years ago, I was doing some work for uh, for Armstrong, which is the largest uh, ceiling and and flooring manufacturer out of the U.S. And we were driving through an Asian city. And uh, we were going to look at that market uh, in terms of their entering the market. And and the the Asia-Pacific head actually... The next day he said, look, we don't need to do the study. And I said, why? He said he didn't see enough construction cranes uh, to, to, uh, to tell him whether there was enough of an opportunity there, right? So I, I think the, you know, the, biggest give, you know, the biggest giveaway, Bob, in, in any urban city is really the amount of towers that keep going up, right? And that's just the reality of it, right? And I think you know, the other part of the infrastructure, obviously, is the airport. And I think the third part of it tends to be, you know, the public transportation system. So I think, you know, all of that together and maybe hotels and you have a nice mix here. Hmm. All right. Let's dig down into this book. Execution excellence. What do you mean when you say that? It's interesting. Um, the the whole concept of strategy, right? And, you know, this, this word's been around uh, probably 100 years and it's it, the word is also abused not only by consultants but also by you know CEOs and leadership and companies right and and sometimes you know people get tired of the word strategy right but you know the the discussion on strategy you know is always about formulation of strategy right you know how do I go from point A to point B and you know where do I go and it's about mission and vision and position. And but the reality, Bob, is you know you can have a, a great strategy but if you can't execute it, you know it's it's not worth anything, right? It's it's another consulting report on a shelf. That's what's been happening, you know, over the years. I mean, you know, 
there's all these great strategy documents uh, and reports that, you know, Fortune 500 companies pay a lot for. But, you know, research done uh, by, you know, leading business schools around the world show that half of that doesn't get executed right. And so from my standpoint, you know, you know, good strategy is really about strategy execution than about the strategy itself. You know, it's almost like a general saying, look, you know, don't fight a battle you can't win. You know, in, in I, I think in the same vein, Bob, I mean, there's no use doing formulating a strategy that you can't execute. You know, it, it's interesting. You, you're, you're talking about strategy, and, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about strategy and tactics. I know everybody's using strategy, and, and, and it seems to be almost like brand, the word that got overused about uh, five, six years ago, and everyone got sick of it. Do you think um, there's, there's a definite difference between strategy and tactics? Well, you know, I think the, yeah, here's the difference, right? I mean, the difference really, Bob, is that, you know, tactics generally is more operational and it's, you know, the stuff that you would do, let's say, every day or every week. And the tendency of when you use the word strategy is it tends to be more, shall I say, you know, at the 30,000 foot level. Okay. But I think the real issue with this disconnect, Bob, is that, if you've got something at a 30,000 foot level, but, you know, you haven't figured out how to operationalize it, right, or these two don't come together, then you have a problem, right? And and therefore, that's really where, you know, where the scorecard goes is saying, you know, uh, you know, you can have a strategy at, 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 a, at an overall level, right? Uh, but you need to have, quote unquote, the tactics or the, the operational aspects of it to actually get it done, right? So it actually brings it back to the execution issue that I was talking about. Exactly. Uh, let's dig down at the book because, you know, this is a marvelous book. And, and one of the things that I look at in a book like you look at in a city, um, what's happening in the book, if you look at the contents of the book, if the contents are on one page, or, or, or a page and a half, it's not going to be enough information. So um, I love the way you have your contents broken out. There's a lot of information here. This isn't the longest book in the world, but boy, it, it, you, you can go through here as a, as a business person or a person discovering this book and just read the contents and jump into one section that you think is relevant to you. But really, I wanted to ask you, is that a good uh, tactic for reading the book? Can you read the book from uh, the sections you think are important, or should you kind of read the first part of the book first and then jump around, or is it a book that you should read from cover to cover? So it's a you know it's a good question, Bob. I mean, you know, there there are two sets of uh, readers out there, right? I mean, there's a set of readers who have had no experience of uh, of using the balance scorecard uh, as a strategy execution framework. And, you know, and, and therefore it's completely new to them. And I think in, in, in that situation, you know, I would start in the front, right? Because I think you'll need to understand, you know, what it's about, you know, how does it work and, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, but there are, there is a large, there are a large number of, of readers out there, uh, you know, who have quote unquote experimented with using the balance scorecard over the years, you know, some successfully, some less successfully. And, you know, maybe fairly knowledgeable, say, of, you know, chapter one through five and, you know, you know, chapter six is the issue, right? So I think it really depends on, you know, what your experience with, you know, the scorecard has been in the past. Mm. Okay. Well, now we're using the word scorecard a lot. And so for the listeners, what is the scorecard? How do you define that? So, you know, this reminds me, Bob, uh, I was in uh, London a few months ago on work. Uh, I wish I was on holiday, but it's generally, <laughs> it's generally work. 
and um, you know those who've been to London, you know, you know, will find that you know London black cabs are actually more expensive than the ones in New York, right? And um, and what's happened really is, so I was in this cab, and and the guy was talking, you know, the London cabbies are really good guys to have a chat with. And the guy was complaining about, you know, that they've been losing business significantly in the last one year ever since Uber came along, right? And and I said, what happened? He said, well, you know, we spend a couple of years, you know, really studying up to give an exam to become a London cabbie and really know all the streets of the city. Um, and then these Uber guys show up with Google Maps, right? And they've been basically eating their lunch, you know. And, and that really, to be honest, you know, got me going in terms of this book, right? Because at the end of the day, your competitors, you know, if you're running a business and, and, and they have some version of Google Maps that can really fast track their execution of strategy, then it, it, it doesn't matter how long you've been in business and where you've been in business, you know, you're in trouble. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the the starting point of this book really, uh, and then as it progresses, you know, the balance scorecard has is really two key components around it. You know, one, Bob, is 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 actually firstly mapping your strategy. And, you know, I think in in, in a more contemporary term, Google mapping your strategy. It's like, <laughs> look, you know, this is, you know, you know, how do I get from point A to point B? And, and let me draw a map around it. And it's called a strategy map. Okay. And, and then the second thing is is to really say that okay, you know, if that's my if that's my strategy map, then how do I measure my success in execution, right? So it it really starts with you know uh, Bob with uh, with building the the your strategy map, right? And therefore, if you you know if you if you read the book and you know you look at the front end of the book, it really teaches you how to build a strategy map. And that's really it's the concept is really all about focus, right? I mean. Uh, it's almost like, you know, similar to a pilot flying an aircraft and there are a thousand measurements being taken every second, but there are 50 instruments he or she is looking at. And as long as, you know, they indicate everything is okay, that means the the aircraft's flying okay. And what the strategy map is really meant to do is say, look, you know, there are, there are so many tactics and operational stuff that's happening every second uh, in your company. But what are the 20 things that you need to focus on to make sure that your strategy is is going right, right? And therefore, it's that's what the map is meant to include. Now, what tends to happen, Bob, is that you know people tend to over to focus excessively on the financial parts of the strategy, you know, around revenue and profitability and risk and you know all the good stuff. Uh, but the reality is, you know, uh, financial performance is actually an outcome. Up. And you need to do something right to get those. And therefore, you know, what the strategy map uh, kind of makes you do is saying, okay, you know what, I, I understand that, you know, uh, the end game is a, is a financial end game. And therefore, let me define, you know, what my overriding financial objective is, what's my revenue strategy, what's my risk strategy, and what's my cost strategy. But in order to get there, what do I need to do with my customers? Uh, in terms of product and brand and relationship management, in order to meet customer expectations, uh, what do I need to do in terms of processes? Which processes do I need to excel at from the standpoint of you know sales, marketing, delivery, manufacturing? And at the end of the day, who delivers processes? People deliver processes enabled by technology. And therefore, do I have the right structure? Do I have you know the right competencies? Do I have the right headcount? Do I have a climate for action? 
Are people motivated? And do I have the right technology backbone, you know, to automate my processes? So, you know, in, in essence, you know, the first part of the book uh, uh, is really focusing on, you know, Google mapping your strategy, you know, deciding on what are the 20 financial customer process organizational objectives that you should kind of focus on um, and and kind of putting a balance around it. And that's really where the word balanced scorecard comes from, right? You just can't have only financial objectives. Similarly, you can't just have only customer objectives, right? So, you know, you want to balance it out between these perspectives. And to be fair, you know, Bob, I mean, the concept of the importance of processes and people and technologies is not new. I mean, you know, many, many strategy books talk about it. I think the difference here is that, you know, these are all kind of linked, right? So everything that you do on the people and technology side must help process. Everything that you do on the process side must help customers. Everything that you do on the customer side must help your financial outcome, right? So I think the difference between, you know, uh, a strategy map versus conventional thinking around strategy is that, you know, this kind of maps it all up and kind of puts the links together, right? And very often just even doing that and not even doing the measurement brings this great clarity, right, of, you know, you know, what do I need to focus on, right? You know, the more I listen to you, it's almost like a business plan for your strategy. Correct. Where, you know, very often, look, half the time, scorecard projects uh, fail. And, and one of the reasons they fail is that they're actually considered to be a project, right? Here's the difference. Most organizations say that they want to be strategy-focused organizations, but they basically run themselves on budgets, on financial budgets, right? And and most financial budgets, you know, any CEO, uh, when he's, you know, not in front of an analyst, will tell you that, you know, most budgets are between a major fudge and a minor minor fudge, right? And so on one hand, while, you know, every organization is saying that we want to be a strategy-focused organization, they're running themselves on a budget, which is only a financial budget and, and is somewhere between a major and a minor fudge, right? So, you know, my, 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 my suggestion to anybody who's looking to execute strategy honestly, right, is to recognize that, look, you know, if you're going to try to do it on the basis of tracking your budget performance every month, that's actually not right. And then what you should be doing is actually be tracking your performance every month on your execution of your strategy, right? Exactly. And, 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 the, and the way that, you know, and, and the way that you can do that is, is use this quote-unquote planning doc, uh, process, which is the balanced scorecard. But once you've designed the scorecard, then you need to stay with it every month, right? Just as you every month you do a review of your company's performance on its budget, you need to review your company's performance every month on its strategy using the scorecard. And then there's a you know much higher likelihood of your succeeding now, I wanted to ask you, because uh, with, with anything that you plan and try and execute, uh, I think it was Napoleon said, you can have the best plan in the world, but as soon as you execute, it falls apart. Do you have to not look at your strategy scorecard as something written in stone and something that evolves and you can pivot away from based on uh, market response or business response? Sure. So, uh, you know, what normally happens, Bob, is not only mid-level executives, but even senior executives somewhat, you know, trying to game the system, right? So here's my thought, right? Unless it's an act of God or it's an M&A situation, I really don't think that the execution uh, or the plan for the year 
that you choose to execute should really be changing significantly, right? Because if, if you're a good enough executive that you're being paid top dollar for, then at the start of the year, you should have figured out what the year is going to look like, right? You should have done all your due, due diligence. You should have done your market research. You should have done all your competitive intelligence. And you should basically have a plan that you can execute, right? Unless there's, as I said, an act of God, or, or, you know, a, a merger of some kind uh, with one of your competitors that obviously significantly disrupts the marketplace, right? So my general recommendation is if you've put a, a, a strategy map and a scorecard together for the year, then you should kind of stay with it through the year so that you're not, you know, you're not measuring apples and oranges, right? Because the, the whole point of the balance scorecard is saying, okay, I've, I've built a strategy map. I've identified the 20 objectives that I want to focus on. For all of those objectives, I've identified who within the organization is going to own each objective. I've identified which performance measure that I want to use. And we can talk about, you know, performance measures a little later today, you know, because it is an art and a science, because there are lead measures and lag measures. You know, what my current performance is, what target do I want to set, right? Well, if you've laid all of those out and, you know, every month you kind of change the measure or you change the objective, uh, you know, then it isn't going to work. Then it's apples and oranges. It's like, you know, even if your kid was going to go give an exam and you said, look, this is what you need to study for. But on exam day, I'm going to ask you another set of questions that aren't in your textbook. It isn't going to work, right? So I think, you know, consistency in focus and consistency in execution, I think is, Bob, the most important reason as to why strategies either succeed or fail. More often than that, they fail not because the management team is bad, not because they got the wrong set of employees. You know, it's just basically there, there's a tendency of a lot of senior leadership to get distracted, right? And sometimes it's, 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 it's you know, not so much for the organization's or stakeholders' interest, it's their own interest, yeah. Do you think a scorecard helps people uh, be less distracted or as a leader of an organization, and, and we're going to get into ownership pretty soon, but as a leader, you're, you're in a meeting and you've got five uh, owners in that meeting, uh, and you can look at your scorecard and, and say, okay, guys, you, you, you know, Joe, you're off track. Why are you talking about that when you should be talking about this? Yeah, I think, Bob, here is an important clarification. So when, when the concept was originally created, right, it was really not meant for individual scorecards. It, it was meant for enterprise scorecards, right? So it, it was about there's a strategy at the enterprise-wide level and what's the scorecard to execute that strategy, and then, you know, then there are departments or divisions and therefore each department or division deserved its own scorecard so that you could basically cascade the strategy through the organization. Right. And that's really, you know, the, the, the scorecard as a concept was really designed not for individual performance measurement, but for enterprise strategy execution. Right. Now, what's happened over a period of time. Right. And this has happened more in Asia and the Middle East, maybe rather than the U.S., is that a lot of the HR guys, the human resources people, were desperately looking for a tool that would help them measure individual performance. Right. And in, 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 in obviously in logical ways, link it to the enterprise. Right. So they've all kind of grabbed onto the balance scorecard as a tool. Right. Now, the problem is and therefore, you know, what I find is that, you know, maybe, you know, half the people out there are actually senior HR professionals using the scorecard. And then the other half are the strategy guys. Right. 
Now, the, the problem with, with, with the, the HR uh, function using it is that when the scorecard was designed, it was designed to have, say, 20 or 25 objectives. And maybe for each objective, you know, uh, one lead measure and one lag measure. And that was 50 measurements, right? And, and what the HR guys started doing is saying, okay, you know what, you're the head of the corporate bank. And, you know, and basically started to take the corporate banking scorecard, which was meant to be owned by five people, and just put the, put the name of the head of the corporate bank on top of it and said, this is your scorecard, <laughs> right? So what, what you have out there is a bunch of what should be departmental or enterprise scorecards with individual names sitting on top of it as if that single individual would be ever comp capable of delivering on 20 performance measures. I mean, even a company can't deliver on five, you know, you know, or 10. How is an individual going to do it, right? So I think it's important to recognize that, you know, the true or, or the purest version of a scorecard is really an enterprise or divisional or departmental scorecard, right? And an individual scorecard, you know, even if you want to use the concept to design it, you know, you can use it, you know, so you can say, okay, I'm going to do for, for, for Bob, I'm going to have one financial measure, one customer measure, one process measure, and one organizational measure, right? And therefore, but still keep it under control, four to six measurements, right? Aligning to the departmental or enterprise scorecard. So that meeting, you know, going back to the comment you made, is the, the, the meeting that you're talking about, which is the monthly executive review is really a review of the enterprise strategy, right? It's not meant to be personal. So, you know, what should happen is, you know, you go into a meeting, there are 10 senior executives around the table. What currently happens is, you know, each guy shows up with, with basically talking about the performance of, of his or her own department. That's not re the reason you're in, in, in an executive committee. The reason you're in an executive committee is to say, look, you know what, these are the 20 objectives the organization needs to focus on. These are the four of them that have gone red. Now let's turn to the owner of the one that's gone red and say, hey, Bob, you know, what's going on and how can we help you fix the problem? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's the, that's, that's the approach that Bob needs to get used, yeah. Hmm. I like that because, you know, I think a lot of time what happens, uh, especially these days, is business is, is going at such a breakneck speed and, and things are evolving so incredibly rapidly. Whereas, you know, 15, 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, you could uh, have a plan and start running the plan and you have six months, one year, two years, three years to actually execute on it because the market was relatively stable. These days, stuff is happening every six months or every month and, you know, your monthly meetings are much more dynamic, much bigger decisions are being made to steer around or through or at least change your tactics to deal with what's happening uh, based on, on some crazy stuff that's going on in the industry. You know, five, six or seven years ago, if I was a company in Singapore, right, and I was saying, okay, who are your competitors, right, you'd kind of look around and say, you know, what are the other companies in Singapore, okay, what are the other companies in the region, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, right, and then which are the multinational companies out of the US and Europe that are on the ground, right, and that was your competitive universe. I mean, today with the internet, I mean, you know, you can go on to Google and put your product name and, you know, there are a hundred competitors, you know, some guys actually sitting where you are sitting right now in Vancouver who are in a position to actually supply product to Singapore in three days, right? So, you know, what, what's happened is that the whole 
competitive universe has shifted you know literally overnight from dealing with a situation where i have five competitors that i worry about to now 500 right and 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 that changes you know literally every day right so it it is you know as you said it's it's a very dynamic situation it, it does create challenges it also does create opportunities right uh, and you really need to be clued on in terms of what your execution is going to be here yeah, well, it also it shows that things are happening so rapidly right now that having a tool like a scorecard and then that scorecard being balanced and it's part of the integrity of what's moving your organization forward uh, enables you to, to, to not get distracted like we were talking about earlier. Something happens in the market, something uh, erupts and disrupts, and then you've got to look at your scorecard and look at your strategy and say, is this going to affect us over the next six months or should we just try and sail by it but be conscious? Yes. So I, I wanted to, to, to dial back a little bit and, and talking about Chapter 10, it's called Picking Owners, and we, we kind of touched on that a little bit, but I think that is so, so important that – People understand that when they're in a meeting and they start throwing ideas around, you you own that idea. So here's the concept of ownership, right? So look, let's let's take an example of you know this is a scorecard or a strategy map for for the enterprise, right? So let's say the enterprise was General Motors, right? So obviously at the enterprise level, you know the there's the CEO and then there are one one downs to the CEO or the CXOs, right? So you know, maybe they're the head of sales, they're the head of marketing, they're the head of manufacturing, they're the head of quality control, so on and so forth, right? And therefore, you know, at the enterprise level, when you build a scorecard, then typically if there are 20 objectives that the enterprise needs to focus on, then the ownership of those 20 objectives needs to be with obviously that group of people, right? Okay, so some of some of it comes very logically, right? So, for example, if there's an if there's an objective around manufacturing, then you know most likely it's the head of manufacturing who should quote unquote own that objective, right? But I I think the again so I think uh, allocating the ownership on objectives is relatively straightforward because typically that objective will relate to some functional area within a company, right? Now there may be some quote new project areas or new business opportunities where the company may not be currently in. And in those situations, you know, what I would expect the CEO to do is to pick somebody who he or she thinks is a high potential executive, right? That could be fast track to leadership, right? And this is kind of a test of whether that, you know, that person truly deserves to be fast tracks, right? So I think getting the ownership at the enterprise level scorecard, or for that matter, Bob, uh, in every scorecard, even at a departmental level scorecard, right? So if I'm the head of the department, you know, I've got a bunch of people reporting into me and I should be able to allocate these responsibilities, right? So I, I think it's not hard to do the ownership. I think the, the difference here is that in that forum when the discussion is going on, the owner is talking about the issues re- regarding that objective and it is not really a takedown of that individual, and it's really about the other people in that forum actually having a conversation on how to help the guy out. Okay. Now, once that meeting is over and the person is back in his office or her office and department, remember there's a bunch of stuff happening in the department. Some of it is strategic and some of it is operational. Okay. And, and that's what that person is comprehensively uh, accountable for. 
right? Whereas within the scorecard, the scorecard is not meant to include everything that's going on within an organization or then you'd lose focus, right? The scorecard is only about, is a, is, is a subset of issues that are very, very important, right? So what I'm saying is that even if you wanted to assess the individual on the enterprise scorecard, it wouldn't be fair to that person because that is not his or her full responsibility. His or her full responsibility is back in the department with some strategic objectives, but some operational objectives of making sure that department runs well every day, which may not necessarily be in the scorecard, right? So that's so the, that's, so you see there are two sets of ownership. One is ownership at the enterprise level to kind of help the executive committee, you know, work the strategy. And then there's ownership as an individual, right, which has, you know, a bunch of uh, key RAs or key result areas or key performance indicators, that what, which is what an HR person would say. Now, this is going to be my favorite topic right now because for every strategy, for every technique, for, for every way of running a business, one of the hardest things is to implement that strategy or implement that scorecard um, uh, overview. Uh, how do you utilize that part of it or, or, or overcome the, the almost impossible task of, of having everybody being focused enough that they're implementing in the way that it needs to be implemented? So, uh, so Bob, there are, few, listen, there are a few challenges, right? And I think yeah, it's uh, partly, partly, you know, so, and, you know, the interesting thing is that some of these challenges are actually regional specific, right? So let me start there, right? When the concept was created, you know, by Bob Kaplan out of HBS, right? Your namesake, right? Uh, well, hey, with a name like that, you can't go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so when Bob and, you know, and David Norton, to give full credit when they created it. They did it with, with the U.S. experience in, in mind, right? And, and what happened in the U.S. And, and probably in most European markets is the, the concept of strategy is, is a relatively mature concept. And therefore, in most organizations, let's not you know argue today whether it's good or bad strategy, but most U.S. companies, right, even mid-sized companies would say, look, do you have a strategy? And they would point to a document. Right? So they would have gone through the process of formulating a strategy and documenting it. And they would have done it themselves or they would have gone and hired a, a well-known consulting firm. You know, and therefore, when the scorecard got created, you know, it was really created saying, look, you know, you've already formulated the strategy. You're struggling on the execution. So here's the scorecard as an execution tool. So it kind of plugged right in. Right Now, you know, when, 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 when I started to work across, you know, Asia and the Middle East uh, after working in the U.S., um, and you go into an organization and it could be a large organization and say, look, you know what, I can help you execute your strategy, you know, and this is how it works. And then, you know, you'd get an answer and say, look, you know, you, that actually I don't have a strategy document that's deep enough. Uh, or it's really a, a, a strategy. It's called a strategy document, but it's actually a budget document with some strategy pages written around it. Right. So what, what, what happened in Asia and the Middle East, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, maybe less now, is that the formulation processes weren't good enough. Bob. And therefore, when you went into the, the organization and talked about execution, they didn't actually have the formulation document. And so you had to actually back end into, into the formulation, right? So the way, you know, one would, could use, actually, it's interesting, the, one, the way one could use the scorecard in Asia and the Middle East, or even in the U.S., if you do not have a, a strategy document that you have created, is you can actually formulate your strategy using the scorecard framework. Right. So then you define a financial strategy, a customer strategy, a 
product strategy, an organizational strategy, and an IT strategy. And then what happens is if you formulated your strategy in that way, then you know putting a scorecard behind it is literally plug and play, right? Okay. Um, so so you know so I think the first point I wanted to make is that look you know the challenge is that look if you haven't formulated your strategy and shall I say not documented it well then, you know, it gets very hard to connect the execution framework to the formulation, right? Because what if it's in the CEO's head, right? Then how does that work, right? So that's, you know, that's the first point, right? I mean, the second challenge on the execution really is back to the CEO. I mean, you know, I've seen this over the years, you know, CEO goes attends the Balance Scorecard Conference. He says, wow, what a great tool. What a good, what a good framework. Comes back, you know, calls us, calls somebody else, says, help me build a scorecard. You kind of do it for, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, at the minimum, it takes six to eight weeks. You get it done in six to eight weeks. And then by the time you're ready, you know, the guy went and attended another conference somewhere else and saw <laughs> another great idea. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, he's forgotten about the scorecard and now it's something else, right? So, I mean, the second real challenge is, you know, you know, this, this, these, you know, I just say not just this initiative or this or this framework, but, you know, any framework should not be implemented if the CEO is not committed to staying with it, right, Bob? And, and so I think that's where often the problem is, right? Then the third problem is, you know, the the CEO picks a, a quote-unquote a scorecard coordinator, you know, who's responsible for making sure that the scorecard gets reported on time every month accurately, right? But if you pick somebody who's too junior, if you pick somebody, you know, who has only a perspective of, of his or her department but doesn't have an enterprise-wide view, um, if he or she made a phone call to somebody within uh, the company and asked for some data, you know, the data may never show up. Right. So that, uh, you know, then you've, you've got a problem because you've got a scorecard coordinator who just basically can't can't ensure that the scorecard gets reported every month. Right. Then, you know, you, you, you can have an issue where the data just doesn't exist. And this happens a lot. Right. You know, uh, there's always lots and lots of financial data. I mean, what do they say? They say, you know, in terms of data. You know, the data that you don't need is always there. The data you need is never there. Right? Yeah. So, you know, so, you know, the, the so organizations have lots and lots of data and they measure a lots of stuff. But very often what needs to get measured isn't there. Right. So what you will find in, in most organizations is that there is data, but there may not be enough customer data. There isn't uh, enough process data. And I think, you know, what's very important, you know, Bob, is that, you uh, you know, the concept of when we're talking about data and measurement is about, you know, the concept of lead and lag indicators, right? So uh, in, a lot of, in a lot of organizations, the easiest data to measure are measurements that are what you call lag measures. That's a measurement that, you know, you know when the, when the event is over. For example, sales revenue is a lag indicator, right? But you only know that the revenue per quarter was good after the, the quarter was done, right? But for example, the amount of time spent with customer, the frequency of interaction with customer, these are all lead indicators because, you know, the assumption is that if I spend enough time with the customer and I meet the customer frequently enough, you know, there's a higher likelihood that there's going to be revenue generated, right? So these are lead indicators. Now, unfortunately, in a lot of organizations, you know, companies don't measure enough lead indicators, right? You know, how, you know, how many... Uh, CRM systems out there have failed because the sales guys just refuse to put the data in there, right? So there is a there is a real issue where you know organizations don't have the right kind of data, 
And there's also an issue sometimes that people go crazy about measurement, right? Like, you know, oh, I need to measure this, but I need to measure it in, in two decimals. Well, even God doesn't know that, right? Come on, I mean, not, as long as we're heading down the, the right direction in approximately the right speed, we know we're executing right, right? So, I mean, you know, you know, these are, you know, Bob, between... The, you know, the CEO, you know, first making sure the CEO is a, is a true sponsor, that he or she doesn't get distracted very quickly and drops the idea in a few months, selecting the right coordinator, having uh, selecting the right measurements, you know, making sure that, you know, uh, the measurements are available at a high frequency. Uh, and then the last thing I would say is, look, the whole point of doing this is to change behavior, right? Is that I report scorecard every month, four things are read, what do we need to do, how do we need to change in order that we make it better, right? But if, if you know, you, you report every month and there's stuff that's read and, you know, somebody gives some rationale behind it and, you know, maybe that's okay once, but if every month, you know, somebody's got an excuse for it and nothing really changes, then what was the point, right? Then, you know, all you do in terms of executive behavior is you go into this room, you keep kind of keep your head down for about an hour so that it blows on top of you. And, you know, you go away and then you come back next month, right? And then, you know, the whole point really failed, right? So it, this this happens, right? So this is, you know, there's a 50% failure rate. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, you come up with a very salient point there with, with accountability. Do, do you think that, you know, at the executive level, there's really no fear of accountability? It's like, oh, yeah, my department's not doing so well. What are you going to do about it type of thing? There, there's there's nobody sitting in the in the CEO seat saying, look, at Joe, if you don't start performing better, we're going to throw you out on your ass, and there's going to be no golden parachute for you. You are at risk of losing your career. Do you think that that people just feel that there's no no accountability? And the only reason I'm saying this is because I was talking to a buddy of mine, and this is like way down from C-suite level. But his frustration was that there were people that are messing up when he talked to the in the organization about these people. They said, "Oh yeah, they do it all the time," and he said, "Well, why are we working with these people?" And, and it's like people are too scared to be tough with suppliers that are basically abusing their relationship. And, th- and they're talking about a 15, 20-year relationship. So if these guys have been screwing up for 20 years, how many hundreds of millions of dollars has this supplier cost the company? So, you know, Bob, I, I think there are two problems. Uh, and this, I mean, it's really an unfortunate situation, right? I mean, you, you, would, you would hope that, you know, most executives look, and that's probably let's 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 talk about this a different way. So I I look if if you if you survey most CEOs and ask them today whether they are satisfied with the competency of their people, most of them will say no, right? And they're really referring to not the people that they handpick to report into them, but the ones below that, right? And and my my honest opinion is that I think you know in general you know human nature is such that people uh, want to do the right thing. And and that generally they're competent enough to do what they need to do. Everybody doesn't need to be a rocket scientist, right? Uh, but you know, very often there is a disconnect. You know, they're either in the raw job function, they're on the structure is off, uh, the role isn't clearly defined. If the role is clearly defined, you know, the accountability isn't there. So I, I I think you know, Bob, what happens is that there is a tendency. Uh, 
I guess is a natural tendency to, and this is not to take away from the fact that people need to be accountable, but I'm now applying the 80-20 rule. Right? Sure, I'm yeah. just saying, look, in, in 80% situations, I think people's hearts in the right place. They want to do the right thing. But if you don't give them the tools to kind of do it, then, you know, it becomes hard to perform, right? So I think that's broadly happening a lot, right? Now, on top of that, you do have a situation, Bob, where, uh, people are, are are supposed to be accountable, and, and but they aren't doing what they need to do. And to be honest, this is generally true at the leadership level, right? Uh, I mean, uh, and the accountability really needs to start there. And I, and I think you know, in, in in that situation, you know, people aren't being generally being held accountable enough. Uh, I, I'm not saying that it should be driven by fear, because fear also you know creates a certain kind of behavior that isn't necessarily good right mm -hmm. so oh, absolutely yeah right so so i i think there's a balance between you know, the between the carrot and the stick right you know uh so i i think at, so to con you know my point is at, at the broader level of the organization i think you know it's really about empowering people to do the right thing and, and, and making sure they're in the right role the right job you know the right accountabilities and they'll get the job done right and at the senior at the senior level it's really about holding people accountable and that isn't happening enough and then you know you add and i, I know the book's not about i mean i think I, I talk a little bit about compensation right but i think you know this whole compensation situation is you know has has got way out of hand right you know uh, I mean, is you know, partly you know, guys like me are at fault, right? Ten or fifteen years ago, we thought it was a great idea to link executive compensation to, to you know, company performance and stock performance, right? And we and we were under the assumption that you know that would you know drive uh, the right behavior. Unfortunately, you know, it seems to have driven bad behavior, right? Well, it's, I think it's evolved bad behavior where people that are you know. Um have the wrong motivation or going into organizations uh, with this in mind. And maybe it's a three or five or 10 year agenda that they have, but when they finally make it to the top and they have this uh, bad attitude towards doing stuff, it's a, like a cancer in the brain of the organization and it, it can just, it can devastate a brand. You know, Bob, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I think I talk about it in the book, but uh, a few years ago, there was a Fortune 500 retailer in the U.S., $5 billion in revenue. It's currently bankrupt, right? Okay, shut down. And I remember I was in there actually doing a bunch of scorecards. I knew the CEO before uh, he got appointed as CEO. Very nice guy. And, you know, and then I was brought on board as soon as he was made CEO, Okay. And, and this company had 5,000 outlets across the U.S. I mean, it's huge, right? And I, I spent four, six weeks or eight weeks doing, a, a, you know, basically the analysis to support the scorecard. And I found that, you know, there was at least $250 million of inventory sitting in the stores across the U.S. that basically was not going to ever move and need to be written off, right? And, and I actually, you know, I basically went back to the guy and said, look, you know what, you need to write this inventory off so that you can clear the stores from with all from with all the junk out of the stores. Right. So that, you know, the customer actually has an opportunity to really look at product uh, that he or she wants to buy and maybe your sales will go up. And he said, yeah, I could never do that. He said, I'd get fired if I did a $250 million write off. <laughs> right. And you know what? The, the reality is, you know, I, I don't know how many people they, they, they employed back then. Maybe it was. 50,000. 50,000 people are out of a job because, you know, a CEO thought, you know, $250 million of write-off 
could could result in his losing his job, right? And so you're absolutely right. You know, in this whole issue around, I've seen it firsthand, right? The issue around executive compensation and position, right, has you know, has really destroyed, you know, uh, uh, fiduciary behavior at the at the leadership level, right? So anyway, you know, it's uh, so you know again, you know, the hope here, Bob, is that you know stuff like you know what I'm talking about or the focus on execution. To a certain extent, also makes the leadership recognize that it's not only about the money, but there's a bunch of other things that needs to happen, right, for those finances to get delivered, correct? And if you do it this way, then what happens is that you know you can't really you can't really game just the financials, right? Because the way the scorecard will will deliver a financial outcome is through the other perspectives, right? And therefore, you know, it's not a short-term financial game. That will make a scorecard look good, right? I mean, it's it's real performance that will drive the financial. Oh, absolutely. Now, um, where should people go to learn more uh, about the book? Because you've got a bunch of scorecards in the back. Can is there a website they can go to and download them? Well, yeah, I, I think. Well, I mean, firstly, uh, I understand the book is available on Amazon. Yeah, you know, it's in the U.S. I know it's also available on Amazon in a few other countries. I, I know it's available on BarnesandNobles.com or BN.com in the U.S. I, I know stores in, in the Middle East and in India for sure have it in, in the bookstores, right? So I think, you know, one is, of course, you know, download a, an e-book uh, easily nowadays, right? Uh, and I think if you Google, you may find a few more websites that carry it, right? Uh, so I think that's the best, best place to go pick it up, Bob. Uh, now, of course, what I've tried to do, and I think that's really, you know, the going back to the point you made uh, on the strategy maps and the scorecards in the back of the book, right? So, and, and he, you know, what I've really tried to do, Bob, so this is what happens, right? A lot of books get written about management theory, right? And the reality is that it does get written by professors and there's nothing wrong with it, right? But very often, you know, they haven't really been, those concepts haven't been tried in the real world, right? And, and, you know, you don't know what's going to work or not work, right? And, you know, sometimes they do it sometimes. And, you know, what I've tried to do is say, look, you know, the, the, the book on the balance scorecard was written maybe 25 years ago. It, it, it has been very successful as a tool. But, you know, let me take my 20 years of, of actually helping clients use a scorecard and actually, you know, shall I say, give more practical advice on, you know, how to use the scorecard to make sure you don't fail with it, right? And, you know, obviously... I've done it across industries, and you know, I felt like you know, it would be nice. It would be a nice freebie to give uh, give the reader, uh, you know, um, an example of what you know, a strategy map or scorecard would look like for I think at least a dozen industries, right? Oh, it's or, amazing. You know, I, I mean, yeah. the, the 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 value of the book, just that one section with the scorecards, yeah. is, is worth you know several thousand dollars of information. Correct, correct. So I've tried to, you know. And I'm not saying, again, just, you know, just, uh, you know, for full, I mean, you know, every company's strategy should be unique to that company. So I would, I would warn every listener not to just take that strategy map and kind of make it their own. <laughs> but, you know, it, it would, uh, it would at least, you know, give them a sense that if I'm a telecom company or if I'm a pharmaceutical company, what are the kind of measurements one should look at? You know, what are the kind of issues that show up in a strategy map and, you know, and hopefully guide them better if they want to do it themselves or take advice in. Oh, absolutely. So, so what's one thing that our listeners can do uh, to move in this direction other than rush out and get your book? Well, I think the, the first thing that they need to do is really do, you know, going is to do a stock taking of where they are and where they want to be. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll be, you know, and, and I tell you, it, it seems like a very, 
motherhood statement I made, right? But I'll, 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 I'll just qualify it, right? So at the top of a strategy map, there's an objective called F1, right? Which is your overriding financial objective, right? Now, you would be amazed. So in my view, there are only three overriding financial objectives in life, right? You want to grow revenue faster than profit, and the strategy is A. I want to grow profit faster than revenue, and the strategy is B. Or I have no interest in profitability. I'm only interested in market share and the strategy C, right? Now, you would think that's a pretty easy choice, Bob. You'd be amazed how many, how many senior executives can answer the question. They want it all. They want revenue. They want maximized profit. They want to maximize market share. You know, and, and therefore, you know, when I say that I think you need to just talk, take stock of where you are and where you want to be, is really to answer that question, saying, you know, you know, what's most important to to my organization and, and its success, right? And I think you start with that, and then you know, from there will come, you know, am I in a high growth strategy? Am I in a? I'm not in a growth strategy, but I'm in a profit strategy, and, and start there, and then you know, from there, then you say, okay, now let's look at, you know, how do we formulate, and then you know, how how do we, you know, how do we execute it, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's brutal. With everything in every business, there's everybody's asking for too much, and and one of the you know the big things in in the marketing industry is uh, they'll come in and they say, oh yeah, well we need it by next Wednesday, we need it at fifty percent less than what you wanted to quote, and we need it to be the best. And it's well, you get two of those, you don't get three. Right. But what you're saying is, is they've got three choices, and they can choose one of them, not even two. Correct. They only get one because every strategy is different. Well, this is what's happening, to be honest, what's happening in, in European and U.S. markets, right? I mean, my, my con- again, you know, my concern, if you look at and you know, I, I have the benefit like you of having worked, you know, in Asia and, and worked in the U.S., right? And, and, and the sad, you know, the sad, the sad thing that I see, right, is, is a lot of U.S. companies talk about strategy, but it's a very negative strategy that they talk about, right? It's all about cost reduction, headcount reduction, cost control, taking down plants, right? In my view, that's a negative strategy, right? I mean, there's no creativity in it, right? I mean, you know, what, what I would really tell, you know, North American CEO or, or a European CEO that, you know, if you really want to talk about strategy, then you should talk about growth, right? Because there's, I mean, I don't, you know, I believe that there's always an opportunity to grow, right? You know, maybe it's not in your core market. Maybe it's in a market somewhere else that's growing, right? Maybe it's in a business that's adjacent to yours, right? Of course, that's going to create some risk for you. Well, that's what you get paid for, right, is, is, is to take measured risk, right? I mean, firing people, shutting down plants, uh, making less product, it's, it's not risk. I mean, you know, that's, you know, that's pretty straightforward. You take those line items down and you'll have some profit. I mean, that's, in my view, you know, Bob, that's not strategy, right? And I think that's unfortunate. That's what's happened, right? Well, it's lazy management. It's like looking at a business like a gardener looks at like a tree. It's like, yeah, well, I'm going to prune it, but then he's going to fertilize the tree. He's going to have some expectation for more uh, fruit coming off of that tree. And then if the if the tree doesn't perform, he says, well, there's something fundamentally wrong with the root system. So now I'm going to go fix that. It takes a little bit of time. So I think that the overall strategy is, yes, you can prune to get some instant cash flow, but what are you going to do with that cash flow? You're going to plug, plug that extra cash flow into your new strategy, not wasted on, you know, propping up other stuff that doesn't make any sense. Correct. Absolutely. Hmm. Hey, you know, we could chat for hours because I love stuff like this. I love my strategy. But unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, I've been chatting with uh, Sanjeev today. Uh, 
execution excellence making strategy work using the balance scorecard uh, highly highly recommended look up uh, if you're not familiar with the scorecard system please look it up or just get the book gosh reading half the book you will be so far ahead of where you are right now so highly recommended Sanjeev thank you for coming on the show it was awesome well, most welcome here hope you enjoyed it too Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.